Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm joined by my partners, Cindy Rogers Ware and Tom Moran. The title of our episode today is The Surety and Fiduciary Obligations. As always, we like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of uh, Surety Today, and we ask that you pass along our contact information any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of the podcasts. Remember, all of our uh, prior episodes of Surety Today are always available anytime through multiple locations on Surety Today page uh, on our website at wcslaw.com as a podcast at iTunes, uh, Google Music, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and uh, on our microsite at suretytoday.net. We, of course, muted the line uh, during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute at the end in case we have any questions. Uh, I'm going to lead off today uh, just with a discussion of fiduciary duties in general. Uh, then Cindy and Tom will follow. Uh, each of us have, have had to deal with uh, claims of bre- a breach of fiduciary duties asserted against sureties, typically by the principal or the indemnitors. Uh, in our respective cases, we've been able to get such claims dismissed or obtain summary judgment, but this alleged fiduciary duty continues to be asserted. Accordingly, we thought it would be a good, a good idea to discuss the issue today. So to establish a claim for breach of fiduciary duty, a plaintiff must prove the following basic elements. First, there has to be a fiduciary relationship between the plaintiff and the defendant. Second, there has to be a breach of that fiduciary duty by the defendant. And third, uh, there has to be injury to the plaintiff uh, as a proximate result of the breach. In the surety context, typically the deciding issue is whether a fiduciary duty can be shown to be owed by the surety. A fiduciary relationship may exist in situations in which there's a justifiable trust confided on the one side and a resulting superiority and influence on the other. Stated differently, a fiduciary relationship is regarded as a special relationship of confidence or trust that may arise when one person has reposed a special confidence or trust in another who undertakes to act primarily for the benefit of the person in a particular endeavor such that the parties do not deal with each other on equal terms. A fiduciary relationship is characterized by that unique degree of trust and confidence between the parties. Um, one of whom has superior knowledge, skill, or expertise, and is under a duty to represent the interests of the other. The disparity in position between the parties is often considered a key factor in determining whether a fiduciary relationship is developed between those parties. A fiduciary duty is an extraordinary one and is not lightly created. A fiduciary duty is the highest standard of duty implied by the law. The law, in order to prevent undue advantage from the unlimited confidence or sense of duty which the relation naturally creates, requires the utmost degree of good faith in all transactions between the parties. 
A fiduciary duty requires the party to exercise the duty in equity and good conscience and and to act in good faith and with due regard to the interests of the one reposing the confidence. As one court put it, a fiduciary must act with scrupulous fairness and good faith in his dealings with the other and refrain from using his position to the other's detriment and his own advantage. The fiduciary duty is so strict because the superior position of the fiduciary affords great opportunity for, abu for abuse of the confidence repose. Now, in most jurisdictions, relationships uh, have generally been held to be fiduciary in nature as a matter of law, such as the relationship between a trustee and a beneficiary, between a guardian and a ward, between an attorney and a client, executors or administrators and creditors, legatees or di distributees of the estate, principals and agents, partners and joint venturers. It's easy to see in the typical fiduciary relationship why a high and strict duty is imposed. These are relationships where the skilled and knowledgeable party is charged with protecting and safeguarding the interests of the other party. And that other party, because it does not have such skill and knowledge, must justifiably rely on the other. However, fiduciary duties are not necessarily conf confined to these special uh, relationships that I just mentioned. The duty can arise when the circumstances make it certain that the parties do not deal on equal terms, but on the one side there is an overmastering influence or on the other weakness, dependence, or trust justifiably repose. Indeed, the um, courts have purposely left open the definition of fiduciary so that new situations and factual scenarios wouldn't be excluded. While fiduciary duties may arise in the course of a business relationship, a contractual association by itself does not necessarily give rise to a fiduciary duty because courts recognize that most commercial con contracts for professional services involve one party relying on the other party's superior skill or expertise in providing that particular service. Every contractual relationship will involve some imbalance of qualities, talents, or position between the parties. So in doing the research, it reveals that the vast majority of of courts that have considered the issue have held that a surety owes no fiduciary duty to its principal or indemnitors. In reaching this conclusion, courts have expressed a variety of reasons. Um, for example, in Travelers Property and Casualty Insurance Company versus Triton Marine Construction uh, out of the District of Connecticut. The court observed that the surety and the principal operated as entities in a commercial relationship. Their relationship could not be described, described as one exhibiting a unique degree of trust and confidence, and the surety, who under the indemnity agreement had the exclusive right to determine whether any claims on the bond should be paid, settled, defended, or appealed, was not under a duty to represent the interests of its principal. In Regionella Construction versus Travelers, uh, the Federal Western District of Pennsylvania Court stated that underlying economics of suretyship weigh against transmuting the surety into a fiduciary. First, the court noted that a surety bond is a financial credit product, not an insurance contract. Second, the surety has a contractual relationship with two parties that often have conflicting interests, namely the obligee on the bond and the principal, which causes the surety to balance these interests when responding to claims. Third, the parties to a surety contract are typically commercially sophisticated. 
They have relatively equal bargaining power and ample access to legal and technical advice. Fourth, the pricing of the premium by the surety is not based on the risk of fortuitous loss, as is the case in insurance contracts, but rather on the assumption that the principal will reimburse the surety in the event of the principal's default and the surety's corresponding loss. Fifth, in the event, fifth, uh, the principal purchases the bond from the surety not for its own benefit, but for the benefit of its customer, the obligee. Sixth, the principal must usually agree to indemnify the surety if claims are filed, which is the reverse of an insurance contract, where the insurer agrees to indemnify the principal who owns the policy. The Regionella Court concluded that surety bond agreements um, are standard commercial contracts, and imposing a fiduciary relationship between parties to a contract is the exception rather than the rule. It stated, perhaps most importantly, the principal surety relationship is riddled with conflicting interests and split loyalties, which fiduciary ship by definition forbids. So in other words, there can be no justifiable expectation that a fiduciary relationship exists because of the tripartite nature of suretyship and the indemnity obligation to keep the surety whole. Surety bonds present the surety with a significant risk of financial loss if its principal falls short in, con in completing its contractual obligations. The Regionella Court stated that Although the agreements arguably position the surety to do substantial harm to the principal's business interests if it were to act in bad faith, they do not go so far as to give the surety an unfettered ability to exert complete control over the relationship without incurring any risk to its own interests. The court stated, to the extent that the principal predicates its fiduciary duty claims on the magnitude of the damage it allegedly suffered at the surety's hands, it is incorrect. As the law makes clear, it is the disparity in position between the parties and not the depth of the damage suffered that gives rise to an overmastering influence and fiduciary relationship. In a contractual relationship, this disparity involves much more than one party's reliance on the other party's performance. So we, um, as, as we always or typically do, we create a, uh, a white paper that we post on our website um, and in that, we'll have uh, all the case sites to all these various cases that, that have held uh, over the years that the surety is not a fiduciary. So with that, uh, I will turn it over to Cindy if uh, she joined us. Um, why, don't you start, why don't you start with Tom? Um, I, okay. His is, his is more the positive side of, of things in terms of how to use the breach of fiduciary duty in a uh, affirmatively, and I was sort of going to clean up with the uh, issue of the defense. There you go. All right, Tom. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, we want to spend some time to talk about the surety's pursuit of fiduciary claims, uh, excuse me, breach of fiduciary duty claims against the principal and indemnitors. As someone who primarily practices in Virginia and West Virginia, I generally file breach of fiduciary duty claims in indemnity cases whenever there's any question of whether the principal paid subcontractors and suppliers with contract funds or whether we have a robbing from Peter to pay Paul type of situation. Um, logically, the question might come up as to why, why pursue, excuse me, why pursue fiduciary duty claims against the principal or the indemnitors? Um, the surety normally enjoys contractual indemnity rights, uh, the rights to be exonerated and held harmless. 
under the indemnity agreement. The surety also has common law rights of indemnity and equitable subrogation. So what, why isn't a fiduciary claim overkill? What does it get you that, that these other claims don't get? And the main reason is to preserve the surety's rights should the indemnitors declare bankruptcy. The two chief attractions to an indemnitor considering bankruptcy are firstly, the discharge of most debts, and secondly, the automatic stay. The discharge helps the bankruptcy debtor achieve a fresh start, while the automatic stay lets the debtor catch his breath in a financial sense. Now, as we'll examine, the impact of both of these can be minimized or even avoided by pursuing breach of fiduciary duty claims where warranted. The general strategy for the surety is going to be that you file a breach of fiduciary duty claim early on against the indemnitors so your collection efforts aren't frustrated down the road. But before we get into the nuts and bolts of the factual showings you're going to need in order to, in order to prove a breach of fiduciary duty claim in the surety context, it's useful to go over some basic bankruptcy concepts. The first is that dischargeability is not absolute. Under uh, Section 523A of the Bankruptcy Code, we have a list of various debts that the bankruptcy courts will hold to be non-dischargeable. In other words, once the bankruptcy is concluded, and the debtor has their other debts discharged, these are the debts that will still be owed and actionable as if there had never been a bankruptcy. The category of non-dischargeable debts that's relevant to our discussion today is in Section 523A4, and this states that the debtor is not discharged from any debt for fraud or defalcation while acting in a fiduciary capacity, embezzlement, or larceny. The next bankruptcy concept is that if you have grounds for non-dischargeability, it's not automatic. A creditor that's seeking to escape discharge of the debt will have to file an adversary proceeding in bankruptcy uh, or get a consent order entered without the need for an adversary proceeding. Now, if, if anyone is unfamiliar with an adversary proceeding, it's essentially a many it's essentially a many lawsuit within a master bankruptcy case. For the most part, unlike the master bankruptcy case, the federal rules of civil procedure apply, which means there's a right to discovery. Now, this can be very useful both for establishing the facts you'll need to prove non-dischargeability, but also if you're still investigating pending claims, uh, can be particularly useful if the indemnitors are dragging their feet and providing access to their books and records. The last bankruptcy concept we're going to review is collateral estoppel that's afforded to judgments from other courts by the bankruptcy court. Collateral estoppel is, is a finding that an issue before the court has been decided previously so the bankruptcy court won't litigate it and instead issue a decision consistent with the prior ruling. So let's say you've obtained a judgment against your indemnitors for breach of fiduciary duty in state court or a U.S. district court. Uh, the indemnitors file bankruptcy and you file your adversary proceedings seeking non-dischargeability of the debt. Will you be able to have the debt declared non-dischargeable as a matter of course or are you going to have to relitigate it in the bankruptcy court? The answer to that is going to depend on how you got the judgment, the bankruptcy court you find yourself in, and possibly the law of the jurisdiction where you got the judgment in the first place. The Supreme Court holds that collateral estoppel can be applied in non-dischargeability proceedings, um, and collateral estoppel treats as final only those questions actually and necessarily decided in a prior suit. Uh, where there has been a consent judgment or default judgment, some courts have held that there has been no question actually decided by the previous court, so collateral estoppel does not apply. Does not apply. 
In, in the case of N. Ray Baczynski, which is from the bankruptcy court of the Southern District of Ohio, uh, dealt with a consent judgment. And the court acknowledged that the Supreme Court had found under federal law consent judgments are not actually litigated and there's no preclusive effect. However, Ohio state courts are split on the issue. And the court eventually found that, that the findings of fact and conclusions of law and consent judgment were not adequate, uh, so it did not apply preclusive effect. In In Ray Raynor, which is a Fourth Circuit case, dealt with a default judgment, and the court declined to apply collateral estoppel on a fraud non-dischargeability claim because the debtor was not aware of the proceeding, there was no cross-examination available, and the burden of proof was improperly placed on the debtor. Some courts have applied collateral estoppel to a consent judgment where the parties explicitly addressed dischargeability or stated that they were bound by the facts recited um, in, in the judgment itself. Other courts will give preclusive effect to a consent or default judgment if the court rendering judgment made subordinate factual findings on the identical dischargeability issue in question. Um, now, keep in mind that when we're dealing with a state court judgment, the preclusive effect is going to be determined by the law of the state where the judgment was issued. So, if the bankruptcy is pending in a jurisdiction where the collateral estoppel issue has been unfavorably decided, don't lose hope. If you obtain judgment in a state where they are given preclusive effect, for instance, you may still be able to establish non-dischargeability. So, as a practice tip, um, we should always ensure that the judgment, whether it's default, consent, or contested, that the order itself actually sets forth all the elements of a breach of fiduciary duty claim and the facts that support each of the elements. This is sometimes an issue when we're dealing with fiduciary bonds. I, I do a lot of fiduciary bond work, uh, and, and we're dealing with quasi-judicial commissioners. Often the commissioner has a form order that they like to use to say that there is simply a breach of fiduciary duty, the bond is forfeited in X amount, and the surety gets a judgment over. When that happens, we have to step on the brakes and propose detailed language that sets forth the circumstances of the breach so we don't run into dischargeability issues later. Um, so we know now why it's important to pursue fiduciary claims as a surety. We know how to preserve them in the bankruptcy court, but how do we we, how do we establish the claim in the first place? There's two basic findings required to trigger Section 5, 534A, I'm sorry, 523A4. Uh, the first is the debt in issue arose while the debtor was acting in a fiduciary capacity, and two, the debt arose from the debtor's fraud or defalcation. For fiduciary bonds, as I just discussed, it's easy, but in the construction context, um, it, it, what do we need to do? What do we need to establish? Um, <clears throat> for, when, you're, when you're trying to establish the existence of fiduciary duty, there are two basic types of jurisdictions. That we've, we've got trust fund states and we've got non-trust fund states. In the trust fund state, uh, establishing the existence of a fiduciary duty is a simple proposition. Where the state statute expressly imposes a trust on contractors, uh, for the benefit of suppliers and subs, there's, that's generally held to be a fiduciary duty. Maryland is one of these states with respect to state and private projects, but not all states are trust fund states. Some states, like Virginia, only have criminal statutes that impose penalties if contract funds are used for other purposes, um, but these criminal statutes are not enough to establish a fiduciary duty. 
fortunately, most, if not all, jurisdictions agree that where you have an express trust created between the parties, that's sufficient in and of itself to create a fiduciary duty. You have to look to the law of the state where the trust was allegedly created in order to determine whether an express trust exists. Now, state laws vary, but this usually requires the identification of a trust set lore and a trustee, an ascertainable piece of property, which is sometimes called the race, and beneficiaries. Simple use of the word trust is usually not determinative. You have to look at the intent of the parties and the language that's used. And of course, in order to take advantage of these rules, sureties often include trust fund provisions and in their indemnity agreements. Typical trust fund provision reads something like, the indemnitors agree that all funds due or to become due under any bonded contract or trust funds, whether in their possession or not, for the benefit of all persons to whom the principal incurs obligations in the performance of such contract for which surety would be liable under any bond. Uh, if, the surety discharges under, if the surety discharges any such obligation, it shall be entitled to assert the claim of such person to the trust funds. Uh, and there may be a, a requirement for the creation of a, a bank account, particularly on demand of the surety. Now, the, the, uh, the trust fund provision that I just quoted is a fairly strong provision, and most of the time, a provision like that will give rise to a valid trust. Uh, there certainly seems to reflect the intent to create a trust, because there's a trust set law and a trustee, there's an ascertainable property in the form of contract funds, and there are beneficiaries. Uh, but it may not fit the bill in all jurisdictions. I recently had a case in the Eastern District, Eastern District of Virginia Bankruptcy Court uh, where the Bankruptcy Court ruled and the U.S. District Court agreed on appeal that a provision similar to the one that I quoted did not create an express trust because there was no immediate requirement to segregate funds in a separate account. It said that the trust property had to be separate from the trustee's own property, citing a prior District Court decision. Uh, and, and the bankruptcy court interpreted that prior decision as requiring immediate, in other words, upon signing of the indemnity agreement, absolute segregation of trust funds in a separate account from the principal's operating account. Now, I, I don't want to scare anyone too much. That's an outlier decision. Fortunately, it was not reported. Um, but I am aware of at least one reported decision that's from the Sixth Circuit following Ohio law that found similarly, although that was not in a non-dischargeability context, and that's the Indiana Lumbermen's versus Construction Alternatives case, uh, 2 Fed 3rd, 670, for those who are interested. So that may be something to think about from an underwriting perspective. Um, changing segregation of accounts from being something the surety can merely demand to being something that's a requirement upon execution. Uh, the second element is defalcation, and the law on what constitutes defalcation has tightened up in recent years. It used to be that depending on the court, a simple commingling of funds or careless bookkeeping could be defalcation. But recently, the Supreme Court decided in Bullock versus Bank Champaign that in order to find defalcation in a non-dischargeability context, a fiduciary must have actual knowledge that he or she is violating a fiduciary duty or the equivalent, uh, which is conscious disregard or willful blindness to a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the conduct will violate a fiduciary duty. There's a lot of theoretical gray area in that definition, but fortunately for sureties um, under, who are looking to enforce their rights under the trust fund provision, 
it seems fairly clear that where an indemnitor executed an indemnity agreement setting forth their duties and they don't comply, they're at the very least willfully blind to the risk, and that's sufficient to constitute defalcation. I was only able to find in my research two published decisions that applied Bullock in the construction surety context, and neither of them had any trouble finding that the violation of an express trust provision in an indemnity agreement was sufficient to show defalcation. Coincidentally, both of those cases are from the Southern District of Florida. Um, in Great American versus Brandt, the surety alleged that the indemnitor received funds on, on construction projects and used them to pay personal expenses, in and, and the court had no problem finding that that was a violation of the trust fund provision. In Developers versus Bitech, um, which is from 2013, the indemnitors actually paid consultants, they paid overhead costs and, and repaid some loans in preference to paying sub, subs and suppliers who brought payment bond claims. The court had no problem finding that that was a defalcation. Uh, and also there was a, a fraud finding um, that provided the separate grounds for non-dischargeability. So to wrap up, there's some practical considerations. Uh, it's not always going to be the economical choice to doggedly pursue a non-dischargeability proceeding in bankruptcy. If you've got a Chapter 7 no-asset case and the debtor is older, they don't have an ongoing business, for example, you're probably going to find yourself in a no-win situation. You may not want to throw a lot of money um, after it by fighting a non-dischargeability claim. But if you've got a debtor with assets, someone who may have means to repay, who potentially has other business interests or is trying to sell real property, or they're trying to regain control of a business, these are situations where you might have some leverage as the holder of an ongoing potentially non-dischargeable claim. Recently, we were able to get a very significant recovery for a surety in just that kind of situation where we had suspicion of a of robbing Peter to pay Paul situation, uh, but hadn't had the opportunity to conduct discovery to flesh out the details and establish proof. The debtor was in the middle of raising capital to buy back his business as part of the bankruptcy proceedings, and the non-dischargeability claim we had filed was frustrating his efforts to get financing. So we were able to settle that claim very favorably by receiving funds from outside sources while the bankruptcy was still pending and the, the automatic stay was still in place. Um, and with that, uh, we'll turn it over to Cindy, who will look at the flip side of this discussion and talk about what happens when the principal alleges that the surety has violated its supposed fiduciary duties. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Um, um, so one of the things that, uh, it, and Mike mentioned this a little bit about uh, this coming up before, and, and one of the reasons we had decided to look into this topic at this particular time was the fact that um, the, a recent decision from the Maryland Appellate Court, uh, because previously uh, it was pretty easy to dispose of these types of claims by saying, oh, now the state of Maryland doesn't recognize uh, an independent cause of action for breach of fiduciary duty. Uh, so now that it does, of course, the concern was, okay, is this going to to make these claims, or I should say more defenses, uh, come up more often uh, than they previously did in the indemnity uh, context. So I wanted to take a little bit deeper dive into seeing what happens in the cases in other jurisdictions where this has come up and actually become you know, a part of, an, of a 
published opinion because I think a lot of times these things probably disappear just from an utter lack of evidence and never really see the light of day in a, in a reported decision. Uh, but as Mike mentioned, the, the key here, the key concept here is the notion that, that you know, with this being a tripartite relationship, um, it's impossible to have that sort of unique duty to one party when the surety is answering, uh, has balancing competing interests among uh, two different sides. Uh, so that sort of by definition sort of takes it out of the uh, possibility of being a fiduciary relationship. Um, but that has not stopped uh, indemnitors uh, from still trying to make this argument. And it sort of goes hand in hand with the uh, surety acted in bad faith argument. They are frequently uh, asserted together. So I wanted to take a little bit deeper dive into where this comes up and, uh, you know, how it's been addressed. So one of the areas that has this has been raised unsuccessfully is where an indemnitor, and typically this will be like a spouse indemnitor who maybe was not actively involved in uh, in the running of the principal's business, or even as we've seen many times, it's the still an indemnitor but ex-spouse, and so they're really not involved in the day-to-day situation that's going on. So where the indemnitor argues that there's a breach of fiduciary duty because they were not given notice of the claims or payments that were be, that were made before they were then confronted with a indemnity demand. Um, and uh, one of the cases that came up in was Hartford Fire Insurance Company versus CMC Construction, which was out of the Eastern District of Tennessee. And in that case, the court, again, as we would expect, rejected the argument that the surety had any obligation, not only from a fiduciary standpoint or a contractual, that, that to be kept informed about claims and payments. I'm not saying it's not a good practice to do, and, and generally, you know, that is something that we are giving notice, but the court did at least say, no, that, that doesn't fall into a breach of fiduciary duty situation. Um, and even in a case where a lot of times the indemnitor will try and use the attorney in fact uh, language in there to say, hey, you know, the surety has a fiduciary duty because it's acting as our attorney in fact, but uh, in most cir- circumstances here, the evidence will be showing that uh, the surety's not really doing anything in the principal's name, it's acting in its own name to address claims and resolve those. Uh, sort of as a corollary to that argument, one of the one of the cases where it comes up most frequently is also where the principal or indemnitor is complaining that it was a disputed claim and the surety resolved it anyway. Uh, and that has come up in a, a number of different cases, including um, uh, some in Nevada, uh, in particular seem to be a, a popular place for raising the argument that you know the surety you know, breached a fiduciary obligation by paying uh, claims that the, uh, you know, that the principal had disputed. And again, um, these have not been particularly successful in raising this as a defense because, um, you know, the surety has a clear contractual right to resolve these and there's no, the, the attorney in fact clause, again, exercising its own rights uh, not the rights of the principal, and that there's no fiduciary duty under the indemnity uh, agreement, that that 
that that's not such a special relationship uh, that it would warrant a, a breach of fiduciary duty obligation. Um, and again, exercising the right to settle uh, affirmative claims is also, so not just uh, settling claims against the principal or the surety, but exercising the right to settle the principal's uh, affirmative claims uh, also comes up uh, as a topic where breach of fiduciary duty is alleged as a defense. Uh, but because of the strong language that's found in uh, our indemnity agreements about what the surety's rights are, uh, again, most principals have not met with any success in, in making an argument that the surety's exercise of its uh, right to settle uh, was any kind of breach of fiduciary duty. Interesting, one case uh, where it was raised uh, again was where the surety had bonded the you know the subcontractor and the general contractor had bonds from the same bonding company, and the subcontractor indemnitors were trying to argue that uh, the surety was acting as uh, a dual agent uh, of you know and therefore was breaching a fiduciary duty uh, to the subcontractor principal, uh, and the court uh, again granted summary judgment to the surety and said you know that that's you know, this this was not a circumstance where a breach of fiduciary duty argument could uh, exist. I've actually only found one case where uh, it survived, successfully survived, um, at least at the summary judgment stage, and it had nothing to do with the indemnity agreement itself. And the court specifically said, I don't find it because of the allegations of the existence of an indemnity agreement, but in that particular case, the parties had a joint control agreement, and the court thought that at least that the issue of whether that created a different relationship and a position of dominance uh, should at least survive summary judgment. Uh, but from everything that I have seen, just having an indemnity agreement alone will not do it. Now, there is one other unique situation, and occasionally, uh, this is much more rare, where the obligee tries to bring a breach of fiduciary duty uh, claim. Uh, and that happened at least one time in a, a case, a traveler's case uh, in Alabama. And it, 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 this was a case where the surety had sued the obligee for unpaid uh, contract funds, and the obligee had filed a counterclaim that asserted numerous tort actions uh, in addition to, to breach of contract saying, uh, you know, various theories of misrepresentation and breach. Uh, I, I did review that case and it, it was fairly summarily dismissed. So there was not really a lot of analysis uh, in that case to, to uh, address because there were just hadn't even really alleged sufficient facts. And when, uh, summary judgment arose, uh, the obligee sort of threw in the towel on that one and didn't really argue it. So that was the only case I've really seen recently where there was an obligee claim. But uh, as, we, as we've noted, you know, the issue, you know, obviously the, the best practice is to have good claims handling practices and perhaps a breach of fiduciary claim may not even arise. But if it does, uh, it's important to point out this is not insurance. This is not a single obligation between an insurer 
and an insured. This is a more complicated multi-party uh, arrangement, and as such, it really cannot uh, be addressed in a way where there's a uh, fiduciary uh, obligation. Uh, and that's all I have, and we're sort of running over our promised time, too, so I will take it back to, uh, to Mike in terms of handling the, uh, any follow-up questions. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Cindy. Thanks, Tom. Uh, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, September 14th at 1230. Um, as, as you know, ordinarily I would mention some upcoming Surety events, but uh, the coronavirus has uh, put an end to all that, at least the in-person ones. So uh, also, as I noted last month and, and month before, my firm is a co-sponsor of the annual Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference, which is generally held in New Jersey in September, but because of COVID-19, the in-person conference has been changed to a webinar. The first ever Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims webinar will be held online on September 24th and 25th. Uh, both webinars begin at uh, 10 o'clock uh, Eastern time and will end at 1 o'clock uh, p.m. Uh, both webinars will provide CLE and CE credits. And our very own Tom Moran will be one of the uh, presenters on the uh, surety uh, program. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. And now I'm going to unmute the Ooh, that's a terrible noise. Uh, hello, everybody. Is there any questions out there for Cindy Tom Moran? All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, calling in. And uh, hope to speak with you all again next month. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.